1: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the 270th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last show, we talked about the fierce fighting at Chancellorsville during the morning hours of May 3rd, 1863. By 10 a.m., in some of the bloodiest combat of the entire war, the Confederates had managed to seize control of Hazel Grove, Fairview, and the Chancellorsville Crossroads.
1: Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart had succeeded in reuniting two parts of the divided rebel army, but it was an accomplishment that the Union soldiers of the Army of the Potomac's Second, II, Third, and Twelfth Corps had made the Confederates pay an extremely high price for. Nearly 9,000 of Lee's troops had fallen in about five hours of savage fighting. The Federals had also lost heavily, suffering about 8,600 casualties.
0: Many people consider 10 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, May 3, 1863, to be the pinnacle of Robert E. Lee's wartime career. Outnumbered and with two wings of his army dangerously divided, Lee had nonetheless audaciously attacked and his troops had driven Joe Hooker's Federals from their position. When Lee rode his horse Traveler into the clearing around the burning Chancellor Mansion, his victorious soldiers raised cheer after cheer for their beloved chieftain, who, they felt, had personally brought them to this moment of triumph."
1: However, Lee wasn't content with having driven the enemy from Chancellorsville. He was eager to start in on the next phase of the attack. But his forces here had not just suffered heavy casualties, they were also in disarray, with rebel units, parts of regiments, brigades, and divisions, having been split apart and or jumbled together during the fierce fighting that morning. That meant that although Lee was anxious to quickly press forward and strike Hooker's Federals again, the reality was that Lee's forces here would need at least several hours to catch their breath and sort themselves out before they would be ready to attack again.
0: But Lee's follow-up attack on Hooker on May 3rd would never take place, because shortly after noon, the Confederate commander learned that Sedgwick's Federals had broken through at Fredericksburg and were marching for Chancellorsville to fall on Lee's rear.
1: As you guys will recall, Major General John Sedgwick commanded the left wing of the Army of the Potomac The force commanded by Sedgwick was supposed to be Hooker's ace in the hole during the Chancellorsville campaign, holding Lee at Fredericksburg while Hooker and the right wing came in on the rebel's flank and rear. Instead, Lee had left a small force to hold Sedgwick in place while he raced to the west to confront Hooker.
0: Lee entrusted Jubal Early with the task of holding the Federals in check along the Long River Front at Fredericksburg. The 48-year-old Early seemed an unlikely candidate to play a leading role at the Battle of Chancellorsville. He entered the campaign as the Army of Northern Virginia's junior major general, although he could claim considerable accomplishment as a brigade commander, as well as success while still a brigadier, leading the wounded Dick Ewell's division during the last part of the Maryland Campaign and at the Battle of Fredericksburg.
1: Highly ambitious and quick to criticize officers who had advanced more quickly, Jubal Early openly sought promotion in 1862. Both Lee and Stonewall Jackson recommended him for a major generalcy that fall. Promotion came in January 1863, eliciting a typically acidic reaction from him. Quote, I know you will think that I am so much tickled with my promotion that I have given up my grumbling, but the truth is that it comes after so many have been made over me that it looks very much like they were picking up the scraps now, and the greatest gratification I have in the matter is that others acknowledge the justice of my promotion.
0: Despite Early's successful record as a brigadier, it might have seemed more logical for Lee to choose a senior division commander, such as A.P. Hill or Lafayette McClaws or Richard Anderson, to carry out the critical task of holding Sedgwick's Federals in place. But Lee obviously detected in Jubal Early a capacity for command without close supervision and so Lee entrusted him with responsibilities during the campaign that were second only to those he placed in Stonewall Jackson's hands.
1: To oppose a force of Yankees, Lee estimated at 30,000 men or more, the Army commander left Early with about 9,000 infantry and 50-some guns. Early would have the four brigades of his own division, comprising Hayes, Louisianans, Gordon's Georgians, Hoke's North Carolinians and extra Billy Smith's Virginians, as well as four batteries of Snowden Andrews Artillery Battalion. Also placed under his command were Barksdale's Mississippi Brigade from McClaw's Division, three companies of the Washington Artillery, and part of the Army's General Artillery Reserve.
0: As Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson left with most of the Army to march west and confront Hooker's flanking force, Early received specific instructions from Lee on the morning of May 1st. Quote, General Lee instructed me to watch the enemy and try to hold him, to conceal the weakness of my force, and if compelled to yield before overpowering numbers, to fall back toward Guinea's Depot, where our supplies were protecting them and the railroad.
1: Should Sedgwick withdraw all or a significant part of his strength, Early was to, join the main body of the army, leaving at Fredericksburg only such force as might be necessary to protect the town against any force the enemy might leave behind.
0: These instructions allowed Early a considerable amount of discretion, and are a clear indication of the trust that Lee had in him. Robert E. Lee obviously believed Jubal Early could function effectively when separated from the main army.
1: Early was familiar with the terrain he would defend. Essentially duplicating the line that 75,000 Confederate soldiers had held the preceding December, Early's position stretched more than six miles along the Rappahannock River. Now, although far from ideal due to the lesser number of men available to hold such an extensive line, Early's dispositions took into account the existing Federal threat and the experience of the preceding December.
0: May 1st passed quietly at Fredericksburg. Federal units mounted weak demonstrations in the course of the day, but for the most part the Yankees remained entrenched at their bridgeheads on the west side of the Rappahannock and in obvious strength east of the river. To the west, Lee and Jackson met Hooker's columns advancing from Chancellorsville and checked them.
1: Dawn on May 2nd revealed another uneventful scene at Fredericksburg. But then, as Early later wrote, At about 11 o'clock a.m., Colonel R.H. Chilton of General Lee's staff came to me with a verbal order to move immediately toward Chancellorsville with my whole force, except for a brigade of infantry and part of the artillery reserve.
0: Early protested that such a movement would be detected immediately by the Federals and would invite an enemy assault against the few remaining rebel defenders. Chilton insisted Lee's instructions were not open for discussion, and so Early reluctantly issued orders that Hayes' brigade and one of Barksdale's regiments remain at Fredericksburg, while the rest of the men would march west to reinforce Lee.
1: The head of the column was approaching the Plank Road just before dark when Early received a note from Lee indicating that Chilton had misrepresented his wishes, and that Early was only to withdraw from Fredericksburg If he could do so safely, Lee granted Early the latitude to remain in place if he believed he could tie down a large number of Federals at Fredericksburg.
0: Certain that the enemy had detected his withdrawal, Early decided to press on and join Lee. His lead units had progressed about a mile west on the plank road when a courier from Barksdale brought word the Federals had advanced in force against Hayes and the artillery. Barksdale had already turned back, as had John B. Gordon, who offered to assist Barksdale even without orders from Early.
1: Well, a divided command would accomplish little, so Early, quote, determined to return at once to my former position, end quote. And he sent a messenger to Lee, informing the army commander of his decision.
0: The news that Sedgwick had advanced in force turned out to be not true, and so Early said that at the conclusion of the stressful countermarch, his men, quote, regained our former lines without trouble about 10 or 11 o'clock at night.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Jubal Early later said that on May 2nd, Sedgwick, quote, might have smashed everything to pieces, but for his excessive caution, end quote. Sharing center stage with Jubal Early in the drama about to unfold at Fredericksburg, 50-year-old John Sedgwick was a Connecticut native and a thorough soldier. A graduate of West Point in the class of 1837, Sedgwick was serving with Robert E. Lee in the 2nd United States Cavalry Regiment when, in 1861, the Civil War caused the two men to pursue different paths. While Lee catapulted to command of the Army of Northern Virginia, Sedgwick steadily made his way up the Union chain of command to become a leading officer in the Army of the Potomac Chancellorsville was his first battle in command at corps level, leading the Sixth Corps, the largest in the army. He was well-liked by his peers, and popular with the men of his command, who affectionately called him Uncle John. Sedgwick was a steady figure in the army of the Potomac's uneven array of generals. He wasn't one to make mistakes, but neither was he particularly creative or aggressive. He was dependable, but hardly dynamic.
0: Joe Hooker wasn't unduly concerned by Sedgwick's shortcomings, because he envisioned a largely static role for the commander of his left wing. As Hooker saw it, Sedgwick's job was simply to engage Lee's attention at Fredericksburg, while he and the rest of the army stole a march on the rebels and turned their flank at Chancellorsville and threatened Lee's rear. By Hooker's reckoning, he was to be the hammer while Sedgwick was the anvil.
1: But Lee's aggressive response to Hooker's flank march derailed Fighting Joe's plan. Stonewall Jackson's smashing of the federal right at Chancellorsville on the evening of May 2nd, and then the fierce fighting between the two sides on the 3rd, led Hooker to call on Sedgwick to brush aside the Confederates confronting him at Fredericksburg and drive westward to Hooker's support.
0: By then, Hooker had siphoned off all the troops in Sedgwick's left wing except Brigadier General John Gibbon's division of the Second Corps and Sedgwick's own Sixth Corps, leaving him a force of about 27,000 men. As we've said previously, Hooker's plan for May 3rd was to stand fast at Chancellorsville with his 70-plus thousand men, while Sedgwick came to his rescue with his 27,000. According to Hooker's new plan, their roles would be reversed, as he would become the anvil and Sedgwick the hammer.
1: It was a role for which the 6th Corps commander was ill-suited but Sedgwick dutifully attempted to comply with his superior's wishes. Unfortunately, communication between the two wings had been sorely inadequate. Hooker had planned on using battlefield telegraph service to bridge the distance between himself and Sedgwick, but from the outset, this system failed. Weak signals and damaged lines hampered transmissions and if messages arrived at all, they arrived hours late. Confronted with a flurry of outdated and sometimes confusing orders, Sedgwick became cautious. When the Confederate troops in front of him mistakenly evacuated Marie's Heights on May 2nd, Sedgwick failed to take advantage of their blunder and seize control of the high ground. It was one of the great missed opportunities of the campaign for the Federals, and things only got worse from there.
0: When Hooker, on the evening of May 2nd, in the wake of Stonewall Jackson's flank attack, called on Sedgwick to act immediately, Sedgwick didn't receive the orders until shortly after 10 p.m. because of the ongoing troubles with the telegraph.
1: Hooker wanted Sedgwick to take Marie's heights, brush aside any resistance he might encounter, and press on to Chancellorsville, attacking the rear of Lee's army early on May 3rd. To comply with this order, Sedgwick would have to clear Fredericksburg of enemy troops, carry an extremely strong position at Marie's Heights, and march the ten or so miles toward Chancellorsville, all in about eight hours' time, most of it in darkness.
0: The assignment was clearly impossible, but Sedgwick did his best to comply. About midnight, he began moving north from his bridgehead below Fredericksburg in an effort to flush Confederate troops from the town. It was slow going. Darkness hampered the movement, as did stubborn enemy resistance. Nevertheless, by early morning, the Yankees were in possession of Fredericksburg. Beyond the town, though, was Marie's Heights, where so many thousands of Federal soldiers had come to grief during the December battle here.
1: To get to Chancellorsville, Sedgwick would have to storm the so-called Gibraltar of the South at Marie's Heights, where Confederates were hunkered down behind the same stone wall that had caused so much trouble the previous December during the First Battle of Fredericksburg. Once through the rebel defenses here, though, Sedgwick would be able to move straight up the Orange Turnpike and fall upon Lee's army from the rear.
0: As we said just a minute ago, Sedgwick was to do all of this before dawn on May 3rd, but at sunrise, instead of being in a position to help Hooker, Sedgwick was stalled at Fredericksburg. A preliminary assault confirmed what every federal soldier here knew all too well, that the heights would be a tough nut to crack.
1: After that preliminary probe was repulsed, Sedgwick next attacked the flanks of the Confederate position, but was stopped cold. The failure of these Federal moves left hundreds of Union dead and wounded littering the ground in front of Marie's Heights. A truce to allow the Federals to remove their casualties was granted by Colonel Thomas Griffin, who commanded the 18th Mississippi, which was posted behind the stone wall. As the Yankees removed their casualties, though, they got a closer look at the enemy defenses and realized the Confederates didn't actually hold the stone wall in any great strength, a fact that was duly passed on to Sedgwick.
0: Having failed to turn Early's flanks, Sedgwick reasoned that the only thing he could do was attack the stone wall across the same open ground, just outside of town, where Ambrose Burnside had met his ruin the previous December. It was a gamble, but Cedric believed that if his men kept the Confederate troops on either flank locked into their positions, then the rebels defending the wall wouldn't be reinforced.
1: Furthermore, if the Federal attackers didn't stop to fire their weapons or reload, but simply fixed bayonets and charged the rebel position, they could, in theory, simply overwhelm the defenders. Sedgwick's attacking force was composed of three columns, each directed to hit the rebel line from a different point. Just past 10 a.m., about the same time Lee's victorious troops in the Chancellorsville clearing were cheering their chief, the Federals' right attack column advanced out of Fredericksburg toward the heights to their front. Just after the men of the 61st Pennsylvania had crossed a small bridge over a canal, Rebel guns opened up on them, checking the advance.
0: Soon after the right column began its advance, the center column made for the stone wall. In line with their advance was a depression in the ground that sheltered the federal soldiers until they got within rifle range of the rebel infantry behind the wall. The Yankees, quote, seemed to rise out of the earth, according to a Confederate officer who watched the action from the heights. As the federal attackers came into view, the troops of the 18th Mississippi, together with three companies from the 21st Mississippi, opened fire, staggering the vanguard of the center column and bringing it to a halt.
1: Before the left-hand column was launched against the rebel position, Colonel Thomas Allen of the 5th Wisconsin addressed his men, who were to lead the attack here. Allen told them, Boys, you see those heights. You have got to take them. You think you cannot do it, but you can and you will. When the signal forward is given, you will start it double quick. You will not fire a gun, and you will not stop until you get the order to halt. You will never get that order.
0: When the signal was given, the men of the 5th Wisconsin surged forward with a yell. The southernmost elements of the 18th Mississippi behind the stone wall and those of the 21st Mississippi above them on the high ground were hard-pressed to deal with the combined pressure of the federal attack columns. Ten Union regiments pressed relentlessly forward against the two Confederate regiments and the eight guns supporting them.
1: The pressure proved too much, The Federal's left-hand column was getting closer to the wall, which was ablaze with smoke and flame from the rebel musket fire. Suddenly, the Confederate fire slackened considerably as many of the defenders broke for the heights to their rear. The Yankees poured over the stone wall and engaged in vicious close quarters, hand-to-hand combat with the remaining defenders. In just a matter of moments, the 18th Mississippi's Colonel Griffin and 226 of his surviving troops surrendered.
0: The federal troops continued their push at Marie's Heights in the face of Confederate musket and cannon fire. The Yankees were not to be denied, though, and it wasn't long before those rebel troops, not killed, captured, or wounded, were retreating southward. The Second Battle of Fredericksburg fought over precisely the same ground as the previous encounter was a Union victory. The Confederates defending Marie's Heights lost about 475 men, while the Federals lost around 1,100 men in the assault, which lasted roughly 15 minutes.
1: Robert E. Lee's original instructions to Jubal Early, in case of a federal breakthrough, had been to fall back south along the Telegraph Road and to guard the rail lines south of Fredericksburg, and so early moved his men two miles in that direction upon hearing that Sedgwick had overrun Marie's Heights. He deployed his troops in a line near a crossroads at the Cox House, and then rode out to see what the Federals were up to. He observed Sedgwick's columns moving slowly on the Orange Plank Road toward Chancellorsville.
0: Sedgwick had halted for a few hours after taking the Heights before resuming his advance. He did this in order to bring up Brooks' division from its position below Fredericksburg. Sedgwick anticipated hard fighting before day's end, and he wanted fresh troops to lead his advance to Chancellorsville. While Brooks was moving up, John Gibbon's two brigades of the Second Corps were given orders to stay behind at Fredericksburg, since Sedgwick knew that Early's Confederates were still somewhere off to his immediate south. With Gibbon staying behind to protect Fredericksburg, that meant Sedgwick would have about 23,000 men with whom to march west toward Chancellorsville and fall upon Lee's rear.
1: Meanwhile, at Chancellorsville, shortly after noon, Robert E. Lee received word of Sedgwick's breakthrough. He had planned for the brigades of Lafayette McClaws and Little Billy Mahone to lead the renewed attack on Hooker. Instead, Lee sent them marching east to confront Sedgwick. In the next show, we'll see how the Confederates stopped Sedgwick's advance at Salem Church on May 3rd. And then on May 4th, while Hooker remains strangely inactive, Lee, still determined to strike the enemy a telling blow, masses troops just to the east of Chancellorsville and attempts to coordinate an attack that will destroy Sedgwick's isolated force.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front, The Battles of Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church, by Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White.
1: Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church are the two often neglected clashes of the Chancellorsville campaign. But Mikowski and White's excellent book successfully gives these actions their well-deserved place in the spotlight.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: As we wrap up this episode, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade Odysseus, Robert, and Jennifer,
0: Dakota, Nick, and David,
1: Eric, Anthony, and Mike,
0: and Jay and Sandra.
1: We also want to give a shout out to Lung Wen, Beth and Kevin, and Christopher for their donations.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.